Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As the pandemic changed everything about life really this past year, the reopening of schools was a huge topic. As we saw schools transition to remote learning, some do in-person instruction only to close back down, but it might not be the best course of action to treat schools like COVID hot zones. Thankfully, children are by and large spared most of the effects of the virus. They're only half as likely to get infected as adults, and while they can transmit the disease, they seldom cause outbreaks. Some of the most appropriate safety measures to get school running like normal could include testing and contact tracing, improved ventilation in classes, and keeping students with a single group of peers throughout the day. For more on this, we'll speak to David Zweig, contributor to Wired. One of the strangest, or perhaps even the strangest thing about this virus is it's kind of completely passing over children. They're, of course, out of the millions and millions and millions of people who've been exposed to it. There are some cases with children who've had adverse effects and even died, but the numbers are extraordinarily low. In fact, much lower than they are for any number of ills that can afflict children. They're not exactly sure why this is happening, and that's certainly not the focus of my research, the the why, it's just a matter, but this is what the evidence suggests. And the evidence has only gotten stronger and stronger that kids are by and large, either very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. And then the second and perhaps more salient point is that children, they do not transmit the virus anywhere near the scale that adults do. And that's what really matters as far as opening schools, I think. The CDC so far has released some guidance on possible things, you know, different words like if possible and if feasible, you can do those things, but they want to keep students separate in class, you know, do the six feet of social distancing. They want to close down cafeterias, jungle gyms, you know, a lot of different things like that. And then masks. So they want to have kids wear masks, which for younger children is going to be a pretty difficult thing. The CDC guidelines seem to have almost no acknowledgement of both the infeasibility of many of the recommendations and also the costs of many of the recommendations. Have they ever been around a bunch of like seven-year-olds as if they're not going to be fidgeting and touching this mask all day long? And that's a, you know a separate issue from the fact that it's hard to imagine just being a child and trying to learn throughout your day wearing a mask. I, my own district is now recommending that parents procure face shields for our children. I mean, so to be outfitted in all this sort of like biohazard gear, you know, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic here, but being outfitted in some of this stuff is really detrimental to the kids. And there doesn't seem to be a recognition of how that's not going to work well for them by the CDC. And yet I've interviewed more than a dozen epidemiologists and infectious diseases experts in multiple countries around the world. And almost universally, they all were acknowledging the fact that like this isn't necessarily helpful or practical. The heads of 20 different French pediatric organizations 
all signed a letter that stated point blank, it is neither necessary nor desirable nor reasonable for children to be wearing masks in school. So does the CDC know something that the heads of 20 French pediatric organizations don't know? And a very similar statement was released by um, a report that was put together by a panel of experts for the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. And it's the same thing where they advised that masks were both impractical and that it just wasn't recommended, that it could cause strict distancing, could cause psychological harm. What are some of other schools around the world doing to try to help this? Like, you know, obviously not everything will work. And there's some that are, you know, after you can see them going, say, okay, that's not necessarily something we need to go with. But what are some of the other schools doing around the world? It's really a mixed bag, (laughs) um, both from country to country and also within each country. So in trying to sort of put together some sort of like formalized account is, is basically impossible at this point which leads one to understand that there is no consensus. No one really knows what they're doing. And explicitly, that is what multiple epidemiologists who I spoke with, both here in the States and abroad, said to me, that the ones who had any degree of humility all said, we don't really know exactly what makes sense. So the bigger question to me then is a philosophical one. In the absence of knowing with 100% certainty about something, what do we do? And for me, what doesn't seem to make sense is that in the absence of, you know, 100% certainty, what, you know, in baseball, they say like the tie goes to the runner, you know, when it's at the same time as uh, that the the ball gets thrown in when when they get to the base. Why does the tie always go toward more with the CDC and their guidelines, and now what's coming to be many of the state guidelines. Why does it go toward more when perhaps it makes more sense to do less? Well, they obviously are afraid. The downside, of course, is we don't want cases to go up. When you look at the data, and when you look at study after study after study, and again, this is not stuff from three months ago, the evidence just continues to mount that children do not transmit the virus at scale in the way that adults do. Now, maybe things will change in a week or in a month or something, but this is what evidence from around the globe over and over continues to show us. And the last thing I want to ask about, too, is just kind of the effects of all of this, too. Uh, You made mention in your article about the isolation of kids in this, you know, keeping them separate, maybe not uh, having recess the way it used to be, things like that. That also could have an effect on the children. Without knowing for certain, to me, it doesn't make sense to say, well, since we don't know for sure, let's just lock everything down, put them in masks, everybody be apart constantly. You can't touch, you can't do anything. We, here's what we do know. Kids in Sweden, in their schools, in the lower schools, have been open for the entirety of the pandemic. They haven't been wearing masks. They're allowed to touch each other. And there have been no evidence that there are like mass outbreaks. They have 900,000 children in their lower schools, 70,000 teachers, you would think there would be scores of outbreaks, undeniable. You can't you know, keep it secret um, in their schools if children were really at great risk of doing something like this. And you're right. The costs to children are pretty immense. And the mandate of an epidemiologist, it seems by and large, that you know, someone like Fauci, who, by the way, seems like a good man and a wise person and reasonable, but nevertheless, his mandate and the incentives for politicians and for superintendents 
is to go for avoiding what they fear is the worst thing. Their incentives are not aligned toward acknowledging and protecting a much more vague, but equally, if not more important, effect on children. Imagine going through your day for six hours a day, never being allowed to put your arm around a friend. And the jungle gym is closed because they're afraid if you touch it, even though the evidence of the virus surviving on surfaces outdoors is highly questionable. And I've spoken to multiple microbiologists about this. They want a school bus to be half empty, where you have one child on each bench in every other row. So there is this kind of like overarching theme of isolation. There's all sorts of research about touch and how physical touch is critical for how human beings socialize with each other. And you can imagine it's even more important for children. So, I mean, the list goes on and on about what the costs are. They're very real. And I think the largest cost, which I point out in the article, is what's going to become this sort of blended learning model where children are where the schools need to be at a you know half capacity, basically, in order to comply with these distancing guidelines. So they can only have a certain portion of the students there on any given day. And the rest of the time, they're going to be home. And this disproportionately, make no mistake, is going to harm working class families where both parents are working because there is no way they can do their jobs and have the kids home, you know, every other day or every other week. It's going to be interesting to see what further guidelines we get and then how school districts across the country are going to do this. I suspect it's going to be just like you mentioned the article in other countries. It's going to be kind of this mishmash of different guidelines and settings across the country. So we'll have to see how that turns out in the fall. David Zweig, contributor to Wired and author of Invisibles, celebrating the unsung heroes of the workplace. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Finally, for this week, we'll take a look back at the early days of the pandemic and the first nursing home outbreak at the Life Care Center of Kirkland in Washington. 46 people died there, but did those deaths have to happen? The way that COVID-19 tore through that facility is a cautionary tale for the way we operate nursing homes in the U.S. There were failures at many steps, all while residents and workers saw some of their friends get sick and die. For more on how it all played out, we'll speak to Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine. The story is focusing on two women, Helen and Twyla, who lived in room 10 of the Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington. And we've heard a lot about nursing home deaths during COVID. Nursing home Residents account for a teeny fraction of 1% of the population, and still they make up more than a quarter of total COVID deaths. So when one of the daughters, Twyla Morin's daughter, Debbie, announced that she was suing the nursing home, I really wanted to look at this issue of blame. To what extent was the Life Care Center responsible for these deaths? And to what extent was these deaths just inevitable when the virus got inside the building? Because we know it targets older populations. And what I found was a sort of more confusing mix of things. Federal investigators have found that the life care center, the nursing home, made pretty considerable errors in its handling of the pandemic. But what I found kind of around those failures were failures by local hospitals, county, state, and federal officials. I can give you one example. Early on in the pandemic, residents start dying at the life care center, and life care's doctor goes out sick. He starts experiencing symptoms. He can no longer come in. Well, now we're in the middle of a pandemic at a nursing home and there are no doctors available. The nursing home does not have a backup physician available and cannot find one. 
So days pass in which residents are dying and no doctor is on staff to treat them. This is a failure of the nursing home. The nursing home has been fined for a number of violations, over $600,000. But then I started to kind of tease apart, well, who knew that there wasn't a doctor in the facility? What I found was that county officials had kind of asked around at local hospitals, hey, can anyone else fill in at life care? No one stepped forward. The county itself didn't send doctors on site for several days. Also, officials of the Department of Health in Washington and the federal government at the Centers for Medicare Services, they all knew that there was no doctor at life care and no one was able to come up with a doctor. So we see these failures at different levels. But even beyond that, just playing with the same example of the missing doctor, basically there aren't requirements that nursing homes have backup physicians on staff or kind of a secondary person who's there to look at residents. A doctor can be basically working solo in a nursing home without much oversight at all. In it, you have low levels of staffers because they started getting sick too. And uh, a lot of them were calling out. They were working on a skeleton crew. And there's moments that, you, you know, you write in the story where they're just at their wits end. They don't know what to do. They're trying to answer calls from family members. But at the same time, they're like, hey, I got to go. I got to make a 911 call to get a resident out of here. It was like a fire the whole time. If we consider the context, you know, this is at a moment in time where we're really not taking COVID seriously. And, you know, it seems to be sort of a minor threat to the United States. Inside this nursing home, we have residents who aren't being fed regularly, not being bathed regularly, who are being left unattended for long stretches of time. I spoke with a doctor who has experienced treating Ebola patients in West Africa. And he said that when he got to the nursing home several weeks later as, as part of a relief effort, He realized it was a humanitarian mission, not unlike the ones he's participated in abroad. But you're right, the low-level staff were absolutely strapped. They were going out sick. The ones that were there were doing the best that they could. Every single staff member who I spoke to, either on or off the record, cried a lot while we were on the phone together. So I think, you know, it's clear that the staff really suffered. And I think, you know, the lack of preparedness was clear sort of at every level. I did a very haunting interview with Dr. Stephen Morris at the Harbor Reed Medical Center. He's part of what's called disaster medical control for King County. So he helps kind of move patients around when there's an emergency. And he said to me, you know, we weren't really looking at nursing homes. He said he was working on plans to deal with other vulnerable populations like homeless populations. And it didn't really strike him that this was something that was going to affect nursing homes disproportionately, even though the data from China was already suggesting that it would. And I think we see this at every level. You know, I looked at a Washington state kind of a pandemic preparedness exercise that was done a few years ago. A big report was written. I found that nursing homes were rarely mentioned in this big 90 page report. And when they were mentioned, it was kind of an offhand reference as part of a bigger list of different kinds of healthcare facilities. By contrast, that state plan had several sections devoted to very precise requirements for state veterinarians. So I think that gives you a good sense for how much nursing homes are kind of on the minds of public officials. Tell me a little bit about Mm -hmm. testing, because testing is an issue around the country, obviously. But in the beginning there at the nursing home, they requested a bunch of tests. They gave them like half or less than half of what they needed to test, even just the residents. Mm -hmm. You know, staffers were another story. It's tough with tests. You know, there are some things that were easy for me to understand, like at the beginning, there being just a general shortage of tests. That's part of, you know, much bigger story and some of it unique to the United States. But other aspects of the testing story at LifeCare are harder for me to understand. I spoke to several staff members who worked in the nursing home for months. We're talking 
five, six, seven days a week, they were never tested. They never once got tested for COVID during that time. And the nursing home would have known by then that staff members can be asymptomatic and still be spreading the virus. So that's a really big problem. And, you know, I think now, actually, the the testing issue gets back at this larger point of accountability. You know, at the beginning, there was a shortage of tests and the government just didn't have them. But now who should really be responsible for getting the tests? And the nursing home industry will say these tests are really expensive and we need government to provide them for us. And the state should be testing residents for free. But a lot of kind of industry critics will say, no, a lot of these nursing homes are making a lot of money and they should be buying their own tests. So even now, I think there's a lot of kind of punting of responsibility for what to do. And and still in about half of states, nursing home staff aren't able to test with the regularity that's recommended by the CDC. This is such a detailed and comprehensive story, and it's just tough to get to every angle in this one mm-hmm. interview here. But there was an inspection done about how you know everything went through there. This was done by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They yeah. went to evaluate the handling of the outbreak. What was the result of that report? I should say, you know, that the nursing home is currently appealing these findings, but the nursing home was found to have made errors which placed residents in what's called immediate jeopardy. And the nursing home was fined around $600,000 for those errors. And shortly after that report, of course, is when family members start talking about potential wrongful death litigation against the nursing home. And this is really important because right now the industry is basically fighting to make sure that lawsuits like the one that's currently pending against life care don't happen. So we've seen in a lot of states, industry groups lobbying to get states to pass immunity legislation, meaning that families can never sue for anything related to coronavirus. And the industry is also pushing the federal government to do the same. So I think that question of accountability is going to be a big one in the kind of months ahead. And critics will say it's easy to blame a single facility. It's possible to have a lawsuit against a nursing home. Much more complicated if you're trying to bring in a range of government actors who have underregulated nursing homes for a really long time. Just tell us the top takeaway, I guess, from looking into this and and seeing the handling of all this. What could you say is the top takeaway from all this? What surprised me most was just how little nursing homes are regulated in some areas and how little we know about what goes on in nursing homes. Even though at any given time, around 1.4 million Americans, most of them elderly or people with disabilities, are living in a nursing home. So what I found, for instance, is that the nursing home industry is largely made up of private companies. 70% of nursing homes are for profit. Many of them are backed by private equity groups. And those companies receive billions of dollars every year in public money. Still, they don't even need to publish financial statements that are available to residents or family members. They don't need to really reveal much about who they're trading with and who's providing services. And so what I'm finding is that there's just a huge amount of underregulation that has really contributed to some of the issues like understaffing that have affected us during COVID. Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 